Sometimes we don't know what we've got until it's gone, do we? When we go through a breakup, or we lose a loved one, or we lose a job, or our health, it's not unusual for us to suddenly recognize the value of that which is gone. It is human nature. We take certain things in our lives for granted, not realizing just how valuable those certain things really are, not realizing how much we rely on them and how dependent we are on them. And oftentimes when we lose that certain thing, then our lives get turned upside down. The loss of that certain thing creates a vacuum or an emptiness that then throws everything else in our lives into turmoil. The disruption of the loss means that all of a sudden, everything has to be reevaluated and reassessed. We start to ask questions, questions about what really matters. What do we value? What do we love? These are fundamental questions, questions that invite us to look at the very essence and being of our lives. And to look at these questions, I believe Jesus has given us this strange little parable about a dishonest manager. Of course, Jesus loves to tell parables. They appeared in his teaching all of the time. And the funny thing about parables is that they act a bit like a, like a Rorschach or, a, or an inkblot test. Like an inkblot test, parables are often ambiguous and enigmatic. There is no exactly right way to understand a parable, just better and worse readings, which are very much dependent on the listener and their experiences and perceptions. And for all of the parables that Jesus told, and Jesus told many, perhaps there is no parable that Jesus ever told that is more ambiguous and more mysterious than this little parable of the dishonest manager. We just heard it, right? In this parable, a property manager who works for a rich man is accused of squandering the rich man's wealth. The rich man seemingly accepts the accusations and fires his manager and requests an audit. The manager panics because he has a loss for what he will do now. He feels like he's in no shape to work, hard labor, and he considers himself too proud to beg. And so, the manager comes up with a plan. In the hopes of making friends who might show him some kindness, the manager approaches people who owe the rich man. And after inquiring about what they owe, the manager tells them to slash their bills, in some cases by as much as 50%, in the hopes of making friends. So far, so good, right? But then here's the kicker. As opposed to being outraged, we are told that the rich man commends the manager for being shrewd and clever and calculating. What is going on, right? This comes to us as a shock. This is not what we expect. We do not expect the rich man to praise the manager, and we're not sure why the rich man would. Why would the rich man compliment his manager for what looks like 
to my eyes at least, more mismanagement. It's confusing, and it is a question left unanswered by the parable. It's just one of the things that makes this parable so perplexing. But it's not the only thing, right? The parable leaves all sorts of questions unanswered. For instance, here's another one. Who are these managers' accusers? What is their motivation? We don't know. Or another, the manager, is the manager being dishonest to begin with, before the accusations, or only after he got fired? I mean, was he fired for a good cause or not? And what about the people who owe? Did these people who owed the rich man actually pay off at least some of their debt in order to get their bills cut? Or did they just get their bills cut? These are the sort of blanks, empty spaces, left in this parable for us to fill in so that we might make more sense of what is going on. And of course, some of the interpretation after the parable also raises questions. For instance, just what is dishonest wealth? And why should we use it to make friends? And just who are the children of this age, and then who are the children of light? I get worried if I think that we might assume that we are children of light just because we are followers of Jesus. That I would, it makes me nervous. I'm afraid it'll go to our heads, and I'm afraid that our heads might get so big that we can't fit in church. So let's not make that assumption, right? But in any case, there are just so many questions here. So much that is ambiguous, so much that is perplexing. And I'm going to tell you what. I'm not going to answer those questions for you this morning. <laughs> you want definitive answers, and I simply do not have them. The text doesn't tell them what they are. They are blanks there left for us to fill in, for us to wrestle with. I am though I have a little bit of interpretive knowledge and I have my guesses that are educated, I am in the same boat as you are in understanding this parable. But with that said, I do want to tell you what this parable brings up for me. When I listen to this parable, at least this morning, at least right now, I hear it asking me about what I value. I hear it asking me about what I love. Perhaps, perhaps the manager was always in a precarious position when he worked for this rich man, right? But certainly, certainly after the manager got fired, life got very precarious indeed. He did not know what he had until he lost it. And as a result, the manager was forced to ask what mattered and come up with a plan about how he would survive. And he comes up with a plan, doesn't he? And as opposed to coming up with some elaborate Ocean's Eleven-type scheme of, of stealing from his boss, right, and retiring to some beautiful and exotic tropical paradise, our dishonest manager takes a different route. Our dishonest manager makes friends, or at least hopes to make friends friends. Our manager cuts people deals in the hopes of creating bonds of affection. Yes, obviously, 
there is self-interest in play here. But all of a sudden, the friends matter. The relationships matter. The thing is, there is absolutely no guarantee that the manager's plan will work. Those who got their bills cut can just as easily abandon the manager after they have used him as they could welcome him into their homes. And yet, and yet the manager gambles on fostering relationships in the hopes that these relationships will matter. He fosters relationships because it is his hope that these relationships will save him. The manager values the relationships, and therefore he does what he can in his own circumstances to encourage and strengthen those relationships. It is in these relationships that the manager places his hopes. What do we value? What do we love? As we look to answer these questions, Jesus has a warning for us. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve God and wealth. Now, it's not that wealth is bad. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, wealth is viewed as good, a blessing from God. Honestly, frankly, the Bible has a complex relationship with wealth. But Jesus warns us here that if we love wealth too much, then we will not be able to really love God. Jesus fears that wealth will become our God. And this is because Jesus knows that if we come to love wealth too much, then we will come to rely on the security and the pleasure that wealth promises us. The reality, as Jesus knows, is that despite the appearances that we foster in our culture, wealth is fleeting. Wealth is a sandcastle built in the face of rising tides. Wealth is a house of cards built on a rickety table. What do we value? What do we love? Instead of wealth and our own material gain, I hear Jesus inviting us to be as shrewd as the manager in fostering relationships. To begin with, I hear Jesus inviting us to foster relationships with our fellow human beings, using our material resources and all the resources that we have in the cause of building up our connections to others. We are to use our gifts, the gifts we have been given, to work for justice and to work for peace. We are to use our resources to foster respect for the dignity of every human being. That is why God has given us these gifts, so that we might share them with others. And yet in our time, I think it's important for us to recognize that our interconnection goes beyond just our species to include animals and plants and the, and the planet as a whole. For our survival and the survival of, of the, most of the life on this planet, we need to come to terms with how our pursuit of wealth our service to wealth jeopardizes everything, the human species and so much life on this planet. 
Perhaps, I pray, that we are coming to realize that, that the value that there is in our planet and in our climate. Perhaps we can come to realize that we didn't know what we had in our environment until it was starting to slip away from us. I pray it is not too late. For it appears that if we follow our current trajectory, then our comfortable climate, seemingly custom-made for us, will soon be gone. Our relationship to other creatures, non-human creatures, is something that we must come to value and something we must come to love for the gift that it is. What do we value? What do we love? It should not surprise us that Jesus contrasts God and wealth. For while wealth may look like it is stable, our ultimate hope is in God. The real relationship that is of ultimate importance is with the God who creates and sustains us. For it is God who saves us and delivers us. It is God who is there for us. Yes, we are interdependent on one another and on the created order. We exist in relationship with all that is. But all that is, everything that is, is ultimately dependent on God. And it is in Jesus that God calls to us. It is in Jesus that God is with us. In Jesus, God invites us into a relationship that truly, truly sustains. So where are our hearts? What truly matters? What do you value? What do you love? Or maybe it's better to ask, who, who do you love? Amen.